It's another Patch Tuesday. Steve Gibson has the latest from Microsoft. And, of course, we'll answer your questions. Ten great questions, a lot of password conversations and more. Coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 442, recorded February 11th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 183. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite. Whether you have one computer at home or several at your small business, Carbonite backs up your files to the cloud automatically and continually. Plus, access your files anytime, anywhere with a free app. Start your free trial at Carbonite.com. No credit card required. And use the offer code SECURITYNOW to get two bonus months with purchase. And by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging and informative tutorials streamed to your Roku, computer, or mobile device. For 50% off the lifetime of your account, go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN50. It's time for Security Now, the show that protects you, your loved ones, your uh, close personal friends, and pets online and off. <laughs> And significant others. And SOs. Here he is, Steve yep. Gibson, the uh, the king of security now from the Gibson Research Corporation, our security guru, the man who... That big corporation in the sky. <laughs> yeah. Gibson Research Corporation. <laughs> Gibson Research. GRC. At what was the peak size of GRC? Uh, 23 people. That's that's as big as a twit. Just And you had out. a GRC building? Uh, we had a building. We had everyone's cars washed every week. Don't, we won't tell your people What? That. Yeah, because I was having mine washed, and I thought, well, why should I have this, and they shouldn't. So That's kind of uh, cool. Our, our guy came out and uh, spent the entire day washing everyone's cars on Friday. That way they were all clean for the weekend for social events and things. It, it didn't go very well because people began... Like bringing other people's cars huh. to have them washed. And it's like, okay, you know, <laughs> it's, it's one of the lessons that I learned about, uh, you know, giving people too much freedom. They will take it. It is the strangest thing. We've had, I've had a little bit of that experience as well. All of our employees are really great. Yeah. But I think what happens, I, I'm, I'm convinced what happens is they forget that it's a person, that it's a, it becomes a company and nobody has any qualms about taking advantage of a company. Yes. <laughs> Myself and, and fact, included. That of, that, of course, is the problem with corporations that lack and it inherently lack a conscience is if the core, if the if the the people running the company feel that their obligation is to the shareholders at, you know, and 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 have no conscience, no corporate conscience. And this is, of course, where Google's, you know, we will do no evil came from is that, that it was their their deliberate attempt to say we're not going down that path. We've seen it time and time again, and we're not doing that. Well, we're glad that uh, you have pared it down to what three people now, two people. Yes, yes, Greg, Sue, and myself. And uh, as long as I keep them, I'm in business. I can't do this by <laughs> myself. 
because you know I just the IRS would come and drag me off. I'd say, okay, Steve, you know. And I'm reading a book I, about Steve about uh, Jeff Bezos's uh, ah, uh, yeah business philosophies and stuff. It's a fascinating book. The founder and, and CEO of Amazon, Amazon. and yeah. very famously, he considers one of the core corporate values frugal frugality. I guess that's the word. Uh, which he got from Sam Walton, reading Sam Walton's book. Mm, yeah. So it, one of the in the early days of uh, forget washing cars in the early days of Amazon, they wouldn't even pay for your parking. Like they they you had to pay for your parking in the Amazon parking structure. <laughs> Ooh boy! <laughs> so, in the corp in the corporate parking structure. Yeah. So, but yeah. now I mean I think they're, they're you know there's the range right there. <laughs> Free car washes, you pay for your parking right there. That's the range but yeah. that's not what we're here to discuss this is a q a yep. episode we have lots of questions for you steve but before we do that we usually like to take a look at what's going on in the world of security well yeah um this is the, because this podcast follows last week uh i realized this was really the after i looked at the mailbag this was the post password principles and policies podcast ppp yeah, that PPPPPPPPPP. Uh, because everybody wanted to talk about password policies. And arguably, that's very important. Passwords are what we're using today as our means for authenticating ourselves on the Internet. Um, as we know, I'm actively working as hard as I can to change that, as are other people. Um, the FIDO Alliance today released the documentation for their work. Um, and... Eh, I think I did a better job than than they have. But, you know, we'll let the market sort that out. Um, this is Patch Tuesday. This is the EFF's Day We Fight Back. This is the Global Safer Internet Day. Actually, all on today. It's weird that finally, you know, instead of the things happening the day after the podcast, it actually, they all happened on the day of the podcast. Uh, we got some more details about Target's point of, of purchase breach. Comcast is doing something a little chilling and unsettling uh, that we'll talk about where they're turning people's home Wi-Fi routers also into public hotspots. Yeah. Do you have yeah. to give them permission to do that? No. It's oh. been happening. In fact, I don't know that you can even prevent them from oh. doing it. I mean, they're really selling this. They're marketing it hard. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the progress with Squirrel. And, of course, we've got 10 largely password-related questions to discuss today. It's a busy, busy day. I'll tell you what. Let's do a little uh, business here, business, and then uh, we'll get to the uh, the news of the week. Yeah. Our show today brought to you by our friends at Carbonite Online Backup. It's the best way, if you've got data, to make sure your data is safe. It's important to do that, I think, because, uh, well, frankly, these days our lives are on our hard drives. Um Tax time coming up. I bet you a lot of the financial records you'll use to do your taxes are right there on the hard drive. Pictures, you know, baby pictures, wedding pictures, class, classic stuff that you don't want to lose. And you may have a backup strategy. I asked my dad once, what do you do to back up, Dad? <laughs> he said, well, every once in a while I take a thumb drive <laughs> and I put it in the computer and I copy my files over to it. I said, well, how often is every once in a while? He said, well, whenever I think about it. That's a backup strategy, maybe not the best. In my opinion, the best backup strategy would be automatic. You don't have to think about it. It just does it. Continuous would be nice because then when you change a file or add a file, it's automatically backed up immediately. And I think there's a third part that's really critical. It should be, at least part of your backup should be off-site. It's fine to have a backup sitting next to the computer, but what happens if there's a fire or flood or somebody steals all your stuff? Then you're really in trouble. 
your data and your backups are gone. So a good backup solution also includes off-site backup, and that's why Carbonite is great, because it does all three of those. It's automatic, continuous, off-site backup. You can use it uh, on a Mac or a PC. You can use it for a single computer or multiple computers. In fact, they, one of the things that makes Carbonite unique is they have a flat rate. A year, You pay a yearly rate for every bit of data you've got on a particular system. So if it's one computer, for instance, it's $59.99 a year, less than 5 bucks a month. Um, 50,000 small businesses, though, also use Carbonite to back up. That's now up to 350 million files a day, 30 billion files total, backed up by Carbonite. Great for business, great for individuals. They've got plans, personal, pro, and server, all one low flat monthly rate. You never have to check the amount of data. It's very, very secure. HIPAA compliant. So if you're in the medical business, this is safe for you. I want you to try it free for two weeks. Just go to Carbonite.com. You don't need a credit card, by the way. You just need our offer code, Security Now, And you'll get two weeks free without a credit card. And as a way of thanking you, uh, we'll give you two bonus months when you decide to buy Carbonite.com. Please use our offer code security now to let them know where you heard it. Give it a try. It is a backup strategy you can live with. It's peace of mind. You don't have to ever think about it again. Carbonite.com. Leo Laporte, Steve Gibson, Security Now. We're talking about uh, all the security news. It's been a very big week for stuff. So, yeah, it's um, this is, of course, second Tuesday of February. So... Microsoft has been putting together charts for a while, and I just I looked at this chart for today, and I thought, well, okay, there it is. That's really all we need to know. Um, I've got it here in the show notes, Leah. If you wanted to put it up on the screen, um, this is where they're they're doing this thing we've talked about before. Their so-called deployment priority, where they say, you know, we realize that it's there's some burden associated with installing patches, so for typically aimed at, at the corporate, you know, overworked IT department. These are the ones that you really don't want to wait on. Um, for example, they are remote code execution. That's the at the very far end on the right there. It says RCE. That's remote code execution, which is the so-called maximum impact. And, of course, that you could remove max because, in fact, that's what these things do is remote code execution. They're not going to do anything else. Um, so though, so there, there are three patches, one that's in the direct 2D component, one in Internet Explorer, and one in VBScript, of all things. They were all disclosed privately to Microsoft. They're all critical, and those are the patches you want to deploy first. Then they had some in the middle range, so-called important patches, that were like, okay, well, you, this, still you want to do it, but there's, you know, you're not going to be in huge danger if you don't. Um, three patches, one for XML, one for Forefront, which is their their uh, sort of firewall uh, network appliance product, and then .NET also, which are uh, information disclosure, remote code execution, and elevation of privilege uh, impacts, respectively. So not such a big deal. Um, oh, I also should mention that they have the, the, the other thing that we've talked about before is the exploitability index, which is Microsoft's own appraisal of how 
exploitable this is. Like, okay, is it, you know, do, do you have to, you know, stand on one foot and, you know, do crazy things at the same time to make this thing work? Or does it look like bad guys are going to be able to do it? And pretty much they've, they've either got ones or threes here for, you know, red is yes, this is exploitable. Green is, eh, and, you know, it's really unlikely to happen, but let's get this fixed anyway. So not a huge amount of news, a total of seven different bulletins covering these uh, uh, patches, critical down through important. Now, so, here's the interesting you know, question. How many of these are XP? <laughs> Actually, they all run back to XP mm. Service Pack mm. 3. As I was running through mm. them, mm. I thought, yeah, it goes all the mm. way back mm. there. So you got a couple more months. Um, 50, 55 days, my friend. Not that I'm counting. but The, yeah, the, 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 the last Patch Tuesday will be April 8th, and that will be the last Patch Tuesday. And what people have pointed out, you pointed out, is that from then on, Future patches are essentially beacon signals to hackers. Hey, here's something that's not going to be patched in XP. Yep. Yep. We have a couple questions in today's mailbag uh, in our Q&A about the impact of this, about XP being cut loose, essentially. Uh, so I won't, uh, I won't step on that yet. We will talk about yeah. that when we get to yeah. it. But, you, so, you know, I think it's for the next couple of months you're going to want to pay attention. Because it's going to give you some idea of what we can expect. Because well, there's five critical three, no five critical expo exploits, and uh, I thought yep. it was only I thought it was only three of the five with XP, but it doesn't really matter. It's it's more than none. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. XP's not fixed. It's not uh, done. It might, you're right. I may not be all of them. I don't. I remember seeing that the first two that were that not, the, and then I think subsequent the high ones priority were. ones are yeah. XP, the the remote code execution. Yep. So I don't really have much to say about Safer Internet Day, except that there is a site, www.saferinternet.org. <laughs> who's not against that? I mean, who's not for that? I mean, yeah. I think it sounds like a good idea. Good idea to me, you know? yeah. And, and I looked at Google. Google's there. If you look at, if you just bring up the Google homepage today, there's a little link there to Safer Internet. Ah. And it takes you to google.com slash safety center and suggests that you... Flush your browser history. It's like, uh, really? Okay, that, that's how we stay uh, safe, huh? Yeah, I, I I was wondering about that too. If you, it's like Clear the, the, your browser there's, there's, there's if you got Android, do this. If you got a browser, do that. And if you've got you know so and so, so you know four little things, different colors and pretty icons. It's like okay, well, so I guess it's just you know Internet Safety Awareness Day. And it happened to be on February 11th, podcast day. So there you go. Hmm. Um, and it is also the EFF's day we fight back against mass surveillance. Now this is the same. Um, these are the. This is uh, Aaron Schwartz's. Uh, uh, was it Progress Now? Democracy Now? Progress something? Anyway. Um, and uh, Reddit, Alexis Ohanian, and Reddit have again. But remember, two years ago we did this. Uh, everybody, oh, that sites went Sopa. black. That was Sopa and that Pippa. Was Sopa. Sites went black. Uh, we went black and white for the day. You yep. don't see that kind of mass uh, participation this year. I think there's some fatigue, actually. Maybe we've gone to that well <laughs> once too people. often. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, EFF is reporting that that thanks to their work, uh, 5,000 people an hour are calling Congress. You can put your phone number into a page they provide 
and and as I understand it, they call you back and give you a script to read, so that it's you know they're they're yeah exactly right there on yeah, the screen yeah. you're showing it, um, and so they really do make it pretty easy to make your annoyance known. If you're annoyed, then uh, this is an opportunity to to focus all of this annoyance on one day and pretty much overwhelm Congress and show them that you're really <laughs> not happy. You'll the see the stats on that, uh, that page. 50,000, 55,000 uh, calls are placed, 116,000 emails. Emails are worthless, by the way, in my opinion. Uh, you really want to call. It's yeah. Oh, call. I agree. Yeah. Just and, and emails are just going to get filtered off. And, right. You know, someone's not. You know, it's like, okay, how many did we get? Oh, that's nice. But you know, but they not can't, really... for instance, validate that it was from a constituent. So right. I've always been told by legislators, we want snail mail because we look at the postmark, or we want you to call yeah. us. Yeah. Anyway, it's easy and it's free to do so. Yeah. Do it. And who's for internet surveillance after all? Not I. Exactly. Exactly. Now. Comcast came up with a weird idea, and I don't know who's this, <laughs> how this happened, Ugh. but they decided that they want that they themselves would take it on to to essentially create, you know, like Wi-Fi everywhere. And I've got two diagrams that I assembled that are there in the show notes, which are really interesting. One is a close-up of the LA. The, the L.A. metropolitan area showing the Comcast hotspot availability created by Comcast-provided routers in residential settings. Hey, good news. And, You're helping. Exactly. Comcast and, I mean, this is as this, as this has come to light, people, you know, I mean, individual people are saying, wait a minute. You're telling me that we've got... I've got people I don't know connecting to my home router. Yes, you do. Without my knowledge or permission behind my back. And the answer is, uh-huh, yes. Now, I can give you a little um, background if you want. Yeah, uh, please. So uh, I've been a Comcast customer for a long time. At least, I would say about a year ago, Comcast released an app that you could put on your phone that would find a nearby free Comcast Wi-Fi hotspot. Uh, and you would have to be a Comcast customer to use it. And this is, by the way, the benefit to Comcast. This I, is a customer benefit. And uh, it turned out when I first launched it, there were they were all over Petaluma. And I thought, well, where are these? They're not in businesses. Where are they doing this from? So they've been doing this for a while. And they've really, as you wow. can see, they've really increased the map. Ooh, baby. Uh, yeah. And it, it, it isn't uh, altruistic. These aren't free Wi-Fi hotspots for everybody. You have to be a Comcast customer. Right. Uh, it's very frustrating to me. I think AT&T is doing something similar. Well, so now, and so they say on their page, over 500,000 yeah. hotspots, find one near you. And it's funny, when I put my zip code in, because my neighborhood is all Cox Cable, <laughs> there, there are enough. none <laughs> near me. But if you scroll like northwest... Suddenly it's wham. I mean, it's there's like a dividing line at a freeway, and on like on on one side of the of the so-called the Newport freeway, the 55, it's like all red. It's like okay, that's clearly Comcast territory. Um, 
and and then they also say like like they have like an animated flash thing on their page, very pretty looking. You know, graphic design is nice, but I had to like I stopped it and had to go back and freeze it so I could copy the text off. It says with Xfinity Wi-Fi Home Hotspot. So that's what they're calling it. They're also calling it cable Wi-Fi with Xfinity Wi-Fi Home Hotspot. You'll have two Wi-Fi networks, one for you and one for your guests. Well, of course, and everybody else driving around by, you know, outside your home. Now you can give visitors Wi-Fi access in your home without sharing your wireless password. And moreover, we're giving all of our customers access to your residential <laughs> your residential router, which wow. you know, we have, now, we it's have provided. Now, secure, right? I mean, I don't have to worry about... See, that's the problem. We're, we've just been talking about major firmware problems. Remember, you know, the, this backdoor Trojan port 32764... Which was discovered. I mean, we we don't know this is secure. We just know that now people are connecting to to, you know, c- c- considering this a feature of Comcast that they can find a hotspot nearby. Well, yeah, it might be your home, and it doesn't count against your bandwidth. Obviously, they true. They know Absolutely the difference. Does. I would presume. Yep. Um, yep. I guess it should be opt in. I don't think it should be uh, automatic. It's not opt-in. You, it's, and in fact, exactly I don't think there's not. a way to opt out. Is there? Nope. They provide this to you, and it's like, here you go. Uh, by the way, we're take. Essentially, they consider this is their cable, their bandwidth, their router. They're providing this router to you, the Comcast cable router, and so you know they're allowing you to use under their terms their bandwidth and their appliance and oh by the way they're going to be using it too worst company in america ladies and gentlemen by the way i don't know if you saw this uh a guy named matt vukas has i think very effectively demonstrated that comcast is now throttling netflix Uh. comcast launched recently its own online streaming video service directly competing with Comcast, Xfinity Online Streaming. Um, It happened right after the court overturned the FCC's net neutrality Uh, regulation. They were sitting there waiting. Yep. And uh, the way he showed it was very interesting. He used uh, a VPN. Now, normally you'd assume the VPN would suck, but it does have the advantage of hiding from Comcast the kind of traffic going over the VPN. And he found... So here's this is on Comcast. He was getting a bit rate of 235 kilobits per second, which is, by the way, not enough to watch anything at anything better than 320 by 240. He, you know, did this for five minutes, let it sit there, didn't get better, buffered a lot. Then he went through his VPN and got 3,000 kilobits per second. Same connection. Three megabits. Three megabits, yes. even with VPN overhead. Wow. Uh, so that's because Comcast said in this case, oh, you're using Netflix in this case, couldn't tell. Wow. Now, uh, it's just appalling. Yeah, it is. But he and points so out it's effectively a monopoly. You don't really have a choice. Yes, yes. And and exactly here, as I said, that map of, of Comcast hotspots is completely empty. 
in my in anywhere within the region uh, where I am. But all you have to do is you just you know scroll a map um, to the northwest and wham, there it is. So you know if you look at the map, you can scroll around and see where there's Comcast as the provider and not. And if there were choice then you'd expect there would just be random choices being made and, and there, there'd be a mixture. There, there'd be like maybe some variation in, in population density, but not an all or nothing. And, that, and so that, that absolutely demonstrates the fact that there is no user choice. I have no choice. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, of a, I'm a Cox Cable subscriber. That's my, you know, that's my sole option. And that's the problem, you know, where... Um, these meetings are being held in Congress, and and the 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 providers are saying, "Oh well, you know, consu- you know consumers have choice." No, we we actually don't have any choice. No, I mean, you, you in most cases it's a duopoly. You have DSL and uh, cable, and I guess you could use satellite or dial-up, but that's usually not something you'd want to use. Yeah, now, just ask Elaine how she likes yeah, her satellites. Oof. Now, um, Father Robert Ballister on this week in Enterprise Tech this week talked about this and said you can call Comcast. And they can dial in and disable it on your router if you want. Oh, nice. Everybody, please do that. Good luck getting a human at Comcast. But uh, that's the best way to vote. So you're able to say, I object to having people connecting to my router. I don't, you know, I want this disabled. Yeah. And so they're able to connect to it and disable it. My suspicion is that legally they have the right to do this. So that... Currently, oh. as a customer service, they're giving you the chance to turn it off. But if I absolutely guarantee that in the fine print of something you had to you check and say yes as part of you know establishing it, it gives them that right. 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 Sure. Uh, but and for the time being, to, for customer relations, they'll turn it off. But at any point, they could say, "No, we can't turn that off. That's that's built into the router." Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, wow. Wow. I so, just, the worst company in America. Thank you, Comcast. We're getting some uh, creeping details. Uh, not creepy details. Well, maybe they're a little creepy, but creeping. Uh, information is slowly coming to light about what was behind the target point of sale terminal breach. Uh, and Brian Krebs has been on this and, and, you know, doing some great reporting. He said that he, he, he reports that sources close to the investigation said the attackers first broke into the retailer's network. And we now have a date, middle of November, November 15th of last year, 2013, using, and this is what, this is the new information, network credentials stolen from Fazio Mechanical Services, a Sharpsburg Pennsylvania-based provider of refrigeration and HVAC, that's heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems. Fazio's president, Ross Fazio, confirmed that the U.S. Secret Service visited his company's offices in connection with the target investigation, but said he was not present when the visit occurred. Apparently, the VP, Daniel Mitsk, uh, declined to answer questions about the visit. He was there, but he says, I'm not talking. Um, and according to the company's homepage, uh, Brian reports, Fazio Mechanical has also performed refrigeration and HVAC work for specific Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, BJ's Wholesale Club locations in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Ohio, Virginia, and West Virginia. So, you know, so they're a commercial HVAC um, vendor. 
And in this case, Target was, you know, one, one of their clients. So, and Brian wrote, he said, it's not immediately clear why Target would have given an HVAC company external network access or why that access would not be cordoned off from Target's payment system network. But according to a cybersecurity expert at a large retailer who asked not to be named because he did not have permission to speak on the record, it's common for large retail operations to have a team that routinely monitors energy consumption and temperatures in stores to save costs, particularly at night, and to alert store managers if temperatures in the store fluctuate outside of an acceptable range that could prevent customers from shopping at the store. Um, And then quoting this unnamed source, the guy said, to support this solution, vendors need to be able to remote into the system in order to do maintenance, updates, patches, etc., or to troubleshoot glitches and connectivity issues with the software. This feeds into the topic of cost savings, which so many systems in a... which which with, I'm sorry, with so many systems in a given organization. And to save on headcount, it is sometimes beneficial to allow a vendor to support versus train or hire extra people. So the idea being that, that you know, major corporations like Target essentially subcontract out that aspect of maintenance and in return will give a subcontractor credentials on their network that allows the subcontractor to do the job that would normally be performed in-house. And so, again, we don't exactly understand how this is being done. Fazio has now, has since released a statement that says, is divulging more information, saying essentially, pushing back on this somewhat, saying that they ha- their, their contractual relationship that is you know contracts and purchase orders and things is is their connection into target's network that's why they've got you know access to to you know to inside of target's facility so like like a business to business relationship as opposed to something specific to connecting to hvac systems and monitoring and i saw some other conversation on the net that was saying that that <laughs> like it or not Java is the machine-independent technology that a lot of these HVAC systems were built on. And, of course, we know how that goes. I, I should mention that I recently installed Java. Um, Java was complaining that it wasn't able to update itself. And a few weeks ago, I just got tired of that. And so I removed all of the Java from this system. And as happens often, there was something I needed to do that needed Java. So I downloaded it cleanly, 7.051 or something, I think it was, or, or you know, version 7, release 51 from Oracle. And what I appreciated was I installed it on my, on, on my system, and when it, was, when it was finished, it came up with a dialogue, and it said, Java is disabled in all browsers. And I thought, what? And sure enough... They're now Oracle is proactively when you install it, it is not available to browsers. You've got to go into the Java security settings and deliberately turn it on wow. to to make it available That's to browsers. Great. 
It really is. I mean, it is very, it's sad that, you know, how many years did you say we've been doing this podcast, Leo? (laughs) (laughs) Took him a little while. I mean, a decade, you know? And I got, of course, the three billion Javis in three billion devices, whether you want it there or not. It's like, okay. Uh, No, there was in in the the path I took was just putting in Oracle Java into the search bar of Firefox. And it, you know, took me right to the Oracle page. I downloaded, I, you know, I accepted the license agreement, downloaded the the XC27 megabytes of download and ran it. And it installed this with this notice. So it's like, okay, well, yes, we're beginning to make some progress here. You know, untold amount of damage has been done, but to the degree that people will be updating, of course, remember, the problem is that old versions of Java didn't have auto-update technology, and so they have no way of fixing themselves, and they're sitting in systems all over the place with those vulnerabilities exposed. But for new downloads, for new installations... Java knows better than to make itself available to the browser, which is a you know a huge, yeah. huge improvement. Yeah. And I did just see a story that crossed my uh, my path in the last week that was sort of sad, but hardly hardly surprising. And that is a an entire law firm had its entire cache of client files, all of its work product encrypted by CryptoLocker. Someone in the firm, apparently this was a, it was a voicemail message or something. It looked like email that was sent from their voicemail system. An employee clicked on it, didn't realize that it installed, that installed CryptoLocker on that machine. And then they had the, the, the law firm's network server had a drive letter mapped Onto the onto that local system, so CryptoLocker was able to enumerate the drive letters. It went into the server and encrypted all the files. They then waited for oh. uh, reasons that weren't clear more than seventy two hours and lost the ability oh. to decrypt their files. And that was everything that they had. Unbelievable. So I I mention this only because this really does continue to scare me, Simon. Uh, Zarafa, our 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 friend and frequently con- frequent contributor from from Wales, uh, sent me a or a link to a yet a newer version of CryptoLocker, which it's, at this point the, this one was about half seen. I think it's like twenty seven out of the forty seven uh, AV tools that are that are aggregated at VirusTotal um, spotted it. As opposed to not, but nothing, you know, not, nothing like forty-two out of forty-seven. It was, you know, about a little over half. Um, and those other two that I had downloaded and posted on GRC's uh, a malware resource page, at the time I downloaded one of them was like four out of forty-seven were detecting it. And wow. so, the, the, this just worries me because um, certainly our audience is aware of it, but. I just, boy, this thing is nasty. And the problem is it is making these guys so much money that we're never going to get rid of it. Did they pay? I presume they did. I don't know whether, I don't know if it's possible past the 73 hours. It's not supposed to be. So, yeah. 
or 72 so hours, they rather. they didn't respond quickly? I think they got themselves hosed, unfortunately. That's terrible. And they didn't have yeah. a backup. Come on, guys. Or it, it yeah. It, or it, it went, was a hot backup. It, it was a hot backup, and yeah. it went in and, and wiped that out, too. Yikes. <sighs> hey, before, um, I know you have some other miscellany, but, but yeah. one thing I did want to ask you about. Uh, last week, NBC, uh, and we've talked a little bit about this, a lot of us. Oh, Leo, I know what you're going <laughs> to Go ahead. Uh, as part of their Olympic coverage on the nightly oh, news, Richard Engel, their yep. uh, their international correspondent. Uh, Richard, I like so much. He does such good reporting. I've followed him through the trenches of you know of the the middle Middle East, and wow. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, yeah, you know, obviously he's not a tech, very technical guy. So they hired. Oh. This is their first mistake: an antivirus company to yep. set up a test. To see yep. how hackable are you, the premise, and and this is, and I blame Richard for this, or perhaps his producer. They went in with the premise that if you use a device in Sochi, you're at risk, and they <laughs> and they went in to prove it, right? So, and this is of course the wrong way to do news. You don't do news with with the story in your mind and then go out and say, let's get the evidence. Right. You're investigating. And this was not an investigation. They brought in a guy from Trend Micro who brought in a Windows machine and a Mac, uh, opened it up. By the way, you saw Richard Engel tearing open that Mac box. Oh, that I'm was just going to say, he got, it was hard to watch because it was just this gorgeous Apple box yeah, that we all are up, aware obviously. of where you just lift the lid off and sort of air seeps in. And so no. it's, he, he tore it open like know, a the, FedEx box. Oh, my God. <laughs> but that wasn't yes. really the crime. The crime was no. editing because. Uh, what they did is they, uh, they they first of all they weren't in Sochi they were in Moscow thousand a thousand plus miles away uh, they went into a coffee bar he had an Android phone this uh, and these two devices uh, they did not patch any of the devices what they didn't show is uh, but we found out later because the Trend Micro consultant felt guilty I think uh. or was worried because he posted a blog post explaining what they'd actually oh. done. The security industry went nuts over this because it was just so irresponsible. I mean, it got so much coverage. It freaked everybody out. The, 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 the message was, you go and turn anything on and it's immediately taken over. I mean, that's what we were told. But, but the fact is... They clicked on links. I mean, they they, well, they, they and by the way, did nothing that, that you couldn't have done here in the studio. Yes, yes. they went to bad websites, malicious websites. Yes. But neither machine was updated. In fact, and I this is not completely clear. The the Trend Micro blog post said that the Apple machine had Flash and Java installed, but at the same time, he said that they hadn't done any updates or installs on the machines. He oh. actually installed. Two known bad vectors that don't come on Apple machines for that reason. So he installed Java, installed Flash on that machine. Did right. not do Windows Update or Apple Update. These are out of the box, except for putting crap on the machine. Then surfed to malicious websites, and lo and behold, after and running... On, and clicked on links and, and said, you know... And ran software and, and said, yes. okay, okay, okay. They opened Word doc. They did all the stuff that the... And then, and they didn't show this, this was even more offensive to me... They go into the Android phone, intentionally disable the setting that says you can't download uh, third-party apps, and yep. went and downloaded malware. They didn't show any of this in the edit. They merely showed, look, my Android phone has been hacked. After you intentionally download malware, I would expect that. I know. Uh, so I, I think I, the security guy from Trend got cold feet and, and blogged and revealed what had happened. But it was obvious if anybody watched the piece, it was a crap piece. NBC has not yet apologized. 
It is reprehensible. It's poor journalism. It's scare tactics. And it's a lie. And by the yeah. way, NBC is owned by Comcast. I don't have to say anymore. <laughs> <laughs> the worst company in the United States. I'm so glad you reminded me because I, I meant to talk about it th uh, t uh, today because this was, I mean, it, it generated a huge backlash in the security industry because everyone looked at it and said, wait a minute. Th and, and, and I was frankly, I mean, I like, I like Richard Engel, but this was... You know, as same you said. as same as rigging a pinto to explode. No yep. different. It's a lie. Yeah. Uh, and there was, and sadly, there was a good opportunity to help people understand how you get infected and what not to do. But they didn't the only, take that. The only flip side is, if it caused people to leave their stuff at home, th that's probably better too. I mean, I, you know, he, he, you know, the the takeaway was. Try not to bring anything with you that you don't actually need. And it's yeah. like, well, okay, that's not bad advice. I, I mean, guess. It's like, you know, I mean, it's... it's but it's no more dangerous there than it is here. A very good point. There was nothing about being there that was... And, and, I mean, and they talked about all these... It was like poised hackers who were like, you know, peering around the corners and looking at you as you walk down the sidewalk and, you know, like zeroing in on you. I mean, it, it really was... Uh, quite a fright piece. It's very. It's, it was so disappointing to me. Uh, I used to work for NBC, and this is why, by the way, I don't work for mainstream media. They are appalling. Yeah. Anyway, I I, I just I knew you I'm probably so thought something about that, but I I thought I'd mention it. All right. I'm so glad enough, you didn't forget. Enough said. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is uh, completely random, but came from the podcast mailbag miscellanea. Uh, Phil in South Florida, I saw the subject, he said, your EV certs. And I thought, what? I caught my eye. So he sent this on the 3rd of February. He said, I was using your SSL fingerprint site and noticed that your EV is set to expire in about 10 days, letting you know so you don't lose any yabba dabbas. Um, <laughs> so, like first of all, I really appreciated that. Um, I was watching this date approach and i i i could have done it sooner but i finally found some time and i just wanted to say i had another perfect digicert experience i love these guys and i've had a lot of people from you know in the intervening two years cuz ev certs are only allowed to last two years so it was two years ago February 13th, I think it is, is this the, oh yeah, because this was on the 3rd and there was the 13th. So in two, two days from now was when two years ago I purchased my, I essentially went to, I, I dropped VeriSign and switched to DigiCert and oh my Lord, it was wonderful. This was the same way. I, it's funny too, because not only did I, have I had email reminding me that certs were expiring, I got a phone call from them saying, uh, you know, you only have five days left. And I said, no, actually, I renewed that cert. What happened was I had originally, I, I had separate certificates for www.grc.com and just grc.com. And then I added media.grc.com when I wanted to, you know, to, to, to go to full HTTPS 
everywhere so that, you know, or, or STS, strict transport security, so that I would absolutely, so for example, Google could have it built into the to, to Chrome as it is that never attempt to contact GRC except over SSL, which is now built into Chrome. So that meant I absolutely, I could no longer use redirects to take people from insecure over to secure. They had, I had to, you know, be able to support that directly. So um, the the certificate I purchased with DigiCert allowed me to have, for the same price, an additional domain name. You also can't do wildcards in EV. So you have to enumerate the domains that you're going to have. So I had grc.com, www.grc.com, and media.grc.com. Anyway, the media.grc.com was a separate certificate. And so when I renewed my existing EV certs, I amalgamated them so the media.grc.com was now bound into a single cert, which is cooler. And the way I should have done it from the beginning, if I had if I had known to do that. But so the point was that I was being warned that I hadn't updated media.grc.com when in fact I had bundled it into the one that I had updated. So anyway, I just wanted to say for those who um, have heard me talk about them before. These are my certificate guys. And I just had enough. It took me all of uh, 10 minutes. I'm not kidding for the entire process. I had the certificate back in my hands, renewed for two years, plus a free month. Thank you very much. Just because why not? Because they're digicert. Um, I, you know, Veris, I never gave me any months. So I, it was, I, I'm just 100% bullish on these guys. Um, digicert.com. Um, Squirrel, the secure, quick, reliable login project that everybody knows I'm working on. Um, I, I wanted to talk about what's been happening with the design briefly, which is, that as I've mentioned, I am now focused on the user interface, and and as I've been, tr- I understand that that if this isn't obvious to use, simple and straightforward, it's just going to be a dud. It will have been a really tr- intriguing cryptographic exercise, but it's not going to get off the ground unless it is really easy to use, and. We designed the technology on the back end to, to be very powerful. But, and, but it wasn't until I started looking at, okay, how do I describe this, you know, in, a, in check boxes and radio buttons and click OK or click cancel format to end users? And several times now, I've had to go back and and change the design, the technology, in order to accommodate the user interface. And, and I've made a number of small changes over the last couple of weeks. And, and essentially what's happening is I'm, I am iterating. And this reminded me of the time when I was working on the longest repeating strings process where, where I would – I had an idea of how to do this. I wrote a – wrote the code – to find longest repeating strings in a large corpus. And by the time I was done and then watched it work, I thought, oh, I know how to do that better now. And so I scrapped it and wrote it again. 
And that happened like three or four times. Scrapped it and wrote it again until actually finally there was a breakthrough in my thinking where I thought where it's just like, oh, my goodness. And 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 I have yet to describe this to everyone I, because immediately after finishing that, I switched to something else. I don't remember what it was and never never did the podcast that I promised about it. But I'm going to have to if I can figure out how to describe it uh, in the podcast. But so so what what's interesting to me is that is that we're seeing that same sort of thing happening where the 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 needs of the user interface is feeding back into the technology which I thought was done but turns out it wasn't and as a consequence the technology is changing to suit the needs of the user which is entirely appropriate. I mean, I'm I'm really happy with the way this has happened. But I had a, a actually um, this morning at one point I read uh, I was sort of catching up over in the in the Squirrel Development News Group, and I, we had a, a guy who's been a very useful contributor um, ask. He said, "Any estimate on when this might be?" Because I was talking about how once I got everything finished. Um, I'll, I'll go back and catch up on the like many of the pages of documentation are as a consequence obsolete. They describe the way I thought it was going to turn out in the beginning, which is not how it's turned out. And he said, any estimate on when this might be? I'm currently working on a bachelor thesis evaluating Squirrel, and it's quite hard to keep track of all the ongoing discussions. Are there any other major aspects prone to be changed in the near future. And so then I wrote back and I said, on today's podcast, I'm going to talk a bit about the nature of iterating over a design. We did this during the development of the longest repeated strings technology where each iteration substantially improved upon the one preceding until finally there was actually a breakthrough that was clearly the end of the design. And it's interesting too, because I remember when that happened, it was like, okay, now we're done. This, this, you know, it's like this cannot be any better. And I think we're there now with Squirrel. And I said, though, I said, the trouble is, and this is the key, the trouble is, this is what happens with unbounded development where a higher value is placed upon eventually arriving at the best result possible than is placed upon what are effectively arbitrary deadlines. True creativity isn't something that can be demanded by management, given a timeline budget and placed onto a PERT chart. As for where we are today, I had no idea when I switched over to thinking about the user interface that it was going to feed backwards and force significant changes to the design of the technology. But that's what makes this entire effort interesting and I think worthwhile. And I finally, I said, I think with yesterday's redesign, I'm finally happy with the management of the crypto keying, which is is what I've changed. So the good news is I am starting to work on the UI. And and this is you know, when, when people say, when are, when, when's it going to be done? It's like, I, I, I don't know. I would have, I, you know, I just, I don't know. It's going to be done when it's done. And I did, I did write, I said, basically I'm eating, it's all, this is all I'm working on. I'm working on this, eating, sleeping, and maintaining a girlfriend. So, you know, that's my <laughs> life right now. 
And that's why there's no show notes so far. <laughs> People in the chat room wondering where the show notes are for this week. Oh, that's right. I forgot to. You're right. I forgot to post them and don't to worry link to about them, it. As I normally we'll do, do it while, while right. I'm, when I'm doing the ad. You can do it. So, um, and finally, uh, I wanted a, a, to share a field report uh, from Matt in Atlanta. Uh, who sent this on on Friday, February seventh? He's the the subject was Spinrite is the hero. I get the credit. He said, Steve, I started listening to Security Now one and a half years ago, and I've been hooked ever since. During one of the episodes, you described how Spinrite worked, and I decided to buy a copy to put it into my IT toolbox on the off chance I ever needed it. Well, tonight was the night. I just took a graduate assistant position doing IT support for a department in my school and was setting up a KVM switch for a faculty member. Simple job, right? Computers were shut down, cables were hooked up, and power was restored. But one computer was in a blue screen of death loop and Windows recovery wasn't working. I thought for a second got a smile on my face, and pulled out my Spinrite CD. Off it went on level two. After it finished, one sector wasn't recovered. So I crossed my fingers and rebooted the computer. The Windows 7 startup sound never sounded so good. (laughs) It is finally my chance to say thank you for this awesome product. It will and should have Come first in line to fix my problems. Thanks. And he said, side note, I decided to run Spinrite on the drive a second time. And the one unrecovered sector was good. I presume that was just Spinrite doing its thing. And that's exactly right. What Spinrite does is once it finally decides that no matter how hard it tries, it is absolutely unable to recover any additional data from a sector. And one of the unique aspects of Spinrite is able to do partial recovery of sectors. It will then rewrite what it has finally been able to recover back onto that sector, fixing the previously unreadableness of it, making it readable. And so the second time you run it, you see a perfectly readable hard drive. And then... You know, things worked that didn't work before. So, yeah, that's part of what it does. Speaking of things working, I'm watching John King on CNN. I apologize. It's just, you know, it's on a monitor. Apparently his touch screen isn't working. (laughs) 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 They're trying to show there's a a vote going on right now uh, in the House over the uh, debt limit, ceiling limit. Ah, And they're trying to show the results, and he keeps tapping. (laughs) He keeps tapping the screen, and nothing happens. It's like, then he says, well, I guess I can't show you that. So they moved on to an ad. Which is what we're going to do. While you put your show notes up, I will tell everybody about IT Pro TV. This is a great place. If you want to get uh, your skills up, perhaps you're trying to get a better job. Maybe you're looking to um, uh, get those certs that are so valuable in uh, business today. IT Pro TV makes it fun to learn. Now, you've probably seen there's classes. You can go to a a school for this. There's, There's... materials you can buy like books and so forth they all are very expensive i like it pro tv not only because it's fun you can watch put it on their big screen on the roku channel or watch on the computer they have live streaming 
but also it's very affordable. $57 a month, $570 for an entire year with the run of the place. They're on right oh, oh, they're on right now live. And you see when one of the advantages of doing live, you got a chat room, you can ask them questions. Uh, Don and Tim are great guys who are really expert at teaching this material. They've been doing it for years, but they watched uh, Tech TV and then they've been watching Twit and they said, you know, we should do something like that to teach people these certs. CompTIA, Microsoft, Cisco. Oh, they've just added something new. ISC squared. I don't know what that is. This is really a great resource. Go visit them, itpro.tv slash security now we got our very own url itpro.tv slash security now uh they got a little bit of a special deal for you use the offer code sn50 and you're going to get 50 percent off not for the first month or year but forever it pro tv is a really great resource for anybody who you know wants to polish up their tech skills i don't know what they're doing right now i think they said they're they're in between shows. Yeah, you can see their control room. You know, they built a control room in a studio ver- based on our model. They they came over. They duplicated everything with my blessing. They're using the TriCaster, the Heil mics. You see their camera setups are very similar to ours. They're hanging down from the ceiling. When the, I mean, these guys, these guys, re- they got the lanyards. They really are doing a great job. ITPro.tv. I want you to visit them. ITPro.tv slash security now. And then use the offer code SN50. If you use the offer code, we're talking $28.50 a month, $285 a year. That's a lot less than a school or even the materials would cost. IT Pro TV. No, we don't have a 55-gallon drum on our set. They do. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I want to start stealing their ideas. Their stuff looks good. Their stuff, they're in between shows right now. That is a good-looking set. They got the big gears like us. Yep. It's really, these guys are great. And I and I really enjoyed them. Actually, that's not Don and Tim. I guess those are some of the other instructors. ITPro.tv slash security now. All right, Steve, I've got questions. I know uh, you've been thinking hard about the answers. Well, the show notes are now posted. Thank so you. People Thank you. can go to grc.com slash SN. I did not update the page, but the 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 format of the numbering is the same. So if you look at the link for the show notes of 441 and just change it to 442, you'll get it. Or grc.com slash sn slash sn hyphen 442 hyphen notes dot pdf. Thank you. And Thank you. You'll get them. And it's a measure yeah. of how much people love these notes, by the way. They were in the chat room. Where's the notes? Where's the notes? I want to see the, I want to see the graphs. Yeah. I want to see the notes. It's nice that yeah, you been, do that. I've been getting lots of great yeah. feedback about those. Thank so you, thank you I'm for doing that. Glad glad we're doing that. All right. Yes, questions. Questions und answers from Stephen. Question one comes from Paul Green near Boston, Massachusetts. He writes, Steve, I believe the habit of not echoing passwords back. We talked about this. And you know what? I am now going to launch a campaign. Before we get to the email. This we talked about last week. And I, you know what? Thank you, Steve. <sighs> This whole thing of putting dots on the screen instead of the password as you enter it, antiquated, stupid, useless. Yep. And it ju- and especially on mobile devices or on your game console, just gets in the way because it's so hard as it is to enter it correctly. Yep. It accomplishes nothing in terms of security. He says that uh, this goes back to the days of printing terminals and terminal pool rooms. In the 1960s and 70s, terminals were as expensive as 
small cars, as in, for example, a Beetle, the VW. Only a Big Shot had a private terminal. A Big Shot with no hearing because they were noisy, too. <laughs> the rest of us walked to a nearby pool room and sat down at an unused terminal. Because these were printing terminals and because the ability to suppress echoing of characters varied among devices, the usual method of hiding the password was to print a row of X's or random characters and backspace the printing mechanism so that as the user typed his or her password, the terminal printed the password over an obfuscated background. On terminals where printing could be suppressed, the software would simply not echo the password back to the terminal so it would not appear on the paper. That that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was interesting. And yeah. I knew I knew that you'll remember, and our, the old timers among us will remember the term half duplex right. and full duplex. The idea was that to essentially to cut down on on the 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 delay when you type something, a half duplex system would would do local echoing. So when you hit a key, the it was immediately connected to the printer and also sent out. Um, but that meant that the far end did not echo that key back to you. Um, and in fact, if it did, it, if it was set up believing that your terminal was full duplex, but in fact your terminal was half duplex, you'd hit a key and you'd get a double. You'd get a double key because you'd get the one because your half your terminal is running in half duplex, so you'd hit A. Your terminal would type A, and then the A would go off to the remote machine, and and then it thinking that you were running a full duplex terminal would echo it for you, so that you could see what you were typing. Which unfortunately, in this case, you'd already seen, and you'd get a double A. So many times, people would 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 be typing, and they everything they typed came out doubled. But I thought that was just a cool hack uh, that Paul shared, where. Where the if it was time to put in your password, it would you know print a, bu- a bu- bunch of. I actually remember pound signs being like right, the, right. The, the the character for 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 using to obscure something. So it print a bunch of pound signs, then back up, and then you would type your password sort of underneath the pound sign, and uh, and that way not be seen. Here we here we go. We're gonna we're gonna call in on our terminal <laughs> oh, just oh. to get it get it going here, so we can uh, we can log in. To Genie, and uh, <laughs> and that's an actual teletype. Teletype. Yep. There you go. I re- remember that that rectangular brick of of individual slugs. You bet. Now look at here's the, the way we here's the login, and uh, there's the login, and it's going to oh, do the yeah. You know, yeah. Man, you're making me nostalgic. <laughs> <laughs> oh. And they AT and T Unix there from Bell Labs. Oh. Sometime later. <laughs> Some oh, extensive oh. time later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my, my, my. The good old days. Yeah, so that's, you know, but but that was a long time ago, my friends. Like yep. 40 years ago. Can we now get rid of the dots? Yeah, I just, I, I, I think, you know, what, what people need to understand is that the only thing happening, I had I had some people, you know, respond to my rant about this last week, saying that, oh no, you know, the the you're typing into the web browser and and it's secure. I said, no, 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 no. All that's happening is the the form has the password mode set, right? So it it shows dots instead of the actual right. character shape, but they're there. 
And there's all kinds of like password revealer tools and things you, you can get that will like, you know, oh, look, magically it's decrypted it. No, it hasn't. It's just, you know, showing the real character rather than than pretending it's not there. I The yeah, only I'm argument I, I the only argument I guess would be that it's hiding it from uh, somebody looking over your shoulder. But golly, it just doesn't it doesn't help. I have designed the password dialogue for Squirrel and it it and there there's a, a empty field and then I've got two little words on either side at the front at the front of it it says clear if you just want to like, you know, clear the password to start over and the other side it says show. And so if and so the default in I mean in honor of I don't want to like freak people out so by default it will do the character obfuscation but it's quite happy right there at at you know right there where you're typing if you just want to click on show it'll let them be seen because mm-hmm. you know matters not at all to security Matters not at all to security. There you go. You heard it from Steve. It's one of those things we just do because we've always done it that way. Yep. Yep. And, and it would and, scare and, people if you didn't. I mean, people go, whoa. Yes. Exactly. That, like, I'm not supposed to be able to see this. It's like, okay, well, you're typing it. Why can't you make sure you <laughs> typed what you thought you typed? Please be. Somebody should be uh, brave here and just. No sense at all. Do something better. From Ian W. in Ottawa. Why do you use link shorteners that hide the final URL? Somebody could easily typo squat a bit.ly link that you provide on the podcast via audio, then point it at their evil site. Surely a Steve managed system at grc.com redirecting links would be super easy to implement. Actually, we have one at Twit if you want to use it. I know you have to be selective with your time, but in this case, are you sure you've struck the right balance between convenience and security? It is, after an all, an audio podcast about security. So this has always okay. been the issue with the URL shorteners, is they can be well, used to obscure where you're going. There is nothing I would like more than to write my own. Of course, I have the domain grc.sc. Yeah, there you go for a shortcut. Yeah. Um, the problem is, I ask, would people rather I spent time on that or <laughs> worked on finishing Squirrel? And now, once Squirrel is done, would they rather I spent time working on that or or got back to Spinrite six one? And I all I know everyone would rather have Spinrite six one. And 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 the problem is nothing for me is quick because I'm not gonna want to write a link shortener. I'm gonna want to write the link shortener. Yeah, that's the problem. I mean like the galaxy's last word in link shortening. Whatever that is, whether I mean, you know, I'm going to have comments and like a, and, and the ability to browse all the other links, the links that have been that have been defined. I mean, I very much want my own for exactly the reasons that Ian says, but I just haven't been able to get to it. Um, the B- domain Bitly is waiting. Does, we use Bitly and Bitly does offer branded URLs. You see, there's the New York Times yep. URL and that's shortened by Bitly. But I, I know you wouldn't want to use Bitly. I'm not using somebody else's. It's like I'm not having I'm not having YouTube host my videos on GRC. Yeah. It's like no, because yeah. well, after one of those plays, you get the this is random stuff that comes up, and you know, it's yeah. like taking people to other 
unrelated videos. So, Bitly's no. a good company, but okay, I understand. This is and Bitly, as everyone knows, I use bit.ly. They're the there's that that's the shortener I prefer. And for now, that's what I'm going to do. But you know, maybe if if it bubbles to the top of the things I need to do after SpinWrite six one is finished, I'd love to write a you know a GRC yeah. link shortener. Absolutely. And, and as I said, I think we have TW.IM. Um, actually, I'd love to get TW.IT. I guess we have to talk to uh, Silvio Berlusconi to do that. But uh, we have TW.IM as a shortener, but we don't. We rarely use it. Yeah, uh, TW.IT. That that's. That's kick. Yeah. Uh, that's wonderful. Yeah. If we can get the domain name, and I think we just go to Italy and we can get it, uh, then um, we it's easy enough to patch. But we use Bitly. See, we don't. We well, don't but do I'm sure TW's we taken. Do. I should see. T- T- TW's got to be taken. Oh, TW to IT, yeah. No, no, yeah, I mean, yeah. TW in Italy. Yeah. I wonder, Bear, do you do, do we use uh, Bitly, Bear, or do we use something else for our uh, domain shortener? I'll have to ask the, ask the engineering department. Uh, and there is, Kabusi points out, a uh, open source, well, is it open source? Yeah, it's PHP scripts uh, URL uh, shortener. So uh, I can't gang. imagine Steve really <laughs> wanting to. <laughs> there you have it. I think that's Steve's vote. <laughs> He's disappeared. <laughs> Joseph in Maryland, he's got a question about temporary versus permanent password lockout. Uh, enjoyed Security Now Password Policy podcast episode. One of the important features you mentioned, password lockout after, let's say, four or ten unsuccessful attempts. Why do these passwords have to require a manual reset, though? Isn't a temporary timeout, like an hour, enough to dissuade automated brute force attacks? Why do you have to call customer service? You know, it's a great question, and it's just a function, I think, of policy. Um, you know, you can you can reason it out yourself. Um, the The presumption is that if someone is missed the has hit the limit of the number of opportunities that that that's not you. That's the whole point. There'd be no reason to lock it out if it wasn't you. So the so the assumption is you will be able to log in within that ceiling of attempts. And if someone can't, it's not you. So then the question is, what if that's the case, what would you actually want? Would you want it to expire, the lockout to expire and make it again available for someone to try again? Or would you like to be notified? And of course, that's what's going to happen. You're going to try to log in and and not be able to and then have to call in order to get yourself fixed. And they'll say, oh, well, we locked your account because somebody, apparently not you, was trying to get in so what's the and answer so to you your might, secret question <laughs> you, exactly and now might be the time to change your password from monkey to something that you know they're not gonna have a get chance of guessing get last yeah so pass. exactly use lots of you know gibberish and and a password That's rememberer so you don't by the way did you see that um uh, Microsoft put out a paper that estimated that about one in five, twenty percent of all Microsoft account passwords uh, were hacked, were out there on the internet, be- not because they were actually hacked, but because people used the same password on Outlook.com and Microsoft.com that they used elsewhere. 
say, yeah. your Target account or whatever, and those your Yahoo account, those passwords had been leaked out. So they did an estimate. They, they scanned all the passwords uh, you know, from the Yahoo. You know, all those Yahoo passwords are online and so forth. Yeah. And they said, we got about one in five of all of Microsoft account passwords are, are now in the hands of hackers. So the idea being that so, so that is that is showing the the the, the rate or the level of reuse right. of password reuse right yeah Leo I just you know just get LastPass generate a new password for every time you need a password yes it's long and complicated although I am discovering as relevant to last week's conversation a lot of places don't want more than sixteen characters yeah and a lot of them don't allow special characters yep. So I used to do, I, you know, my standard for password generation was 20 characters, mix of everything. And in a lot of places that breaks, Comcast included. Oh, that's another Comcast story. <laughs> Comcast's, uh, there's a bad uh, exploit that allows, <laughs> if you have a Comcast account, you might want to change your password. Did I mention they're the worst company in America lately? <laughs> this has been a, a, a known exploit for some months. And finally, uh, people just released it. They said, let's forget it, you know. So, And Comcast is not telling people to reset their passwords. Yeah. Right. I did see that go yep. by. Yep. Yep. We just don't want to pile on Comcast or anything. Yeah, there, there's something I want to talk about. Maybe I'll make some time next week um, because we've been... Oh, um, they are. We've been going... <laughs> yep. We've been going through um, uh, some discussion of of passwords relative to the way Squirrel's going to operate. And um, because there's going to be a user-assignable password, which is one that they use for authenticating to their phone, but also something that we call an access code, which the system will generate because it absolutely has to be ultra-high entropy. And I don't trust my mom to to do that herself. She just doesn't no. know what that means. Right. And then the question is... Should it be upper and lower case, special characters, uh, digits also, blah, 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 blah. You know, the things we've, we've always talked about. Well, that, what's interesting is there's a strong argument to be made. And in fact, a, a, a good friend of mine uh, first voiced this in email and got me thinking about it. And then the, we, we're like, we're right there in the squirrel project at the same time that when you, when you add a bit, say that you had a, just for the sake of, of discussion, a 32-character alphabet, which is easy to do, 26 alpha um, plus, um, what, six uh, digits, and so now you've got 32 characters. Well, we know that that's five bits. That is, you can represent a 32-character alphabet in five bits. Well, so, that, so it's five bits of entropy per character, if you want to add a bit, every bit you add requires the character set to be doubled in size, right? Because you've got to have characters that, that you can represent with all of those. Anyway, the, the point was that it, it, the, the question is, is it from a user, a user convenience standpoint, does it make more sense to use a larger alphabet – and fewer characters or a smaller, more convenient alphabet and more characters. And my thinking has come around. And in fact, 
to, to the second, to the latter case. These, this access code which Squirrel will generate will be all lowercase alpha because that's the easiest thing to enter on a mobile device. You and and that was the other point. That, Thank that, you. That my, yes, that was the other point that my friend John was making was that getting to special cakes to, to special characters is really burdensome yeah. on on a on a typical touch screen. In some cases, at least in iOS, you've got to do two different shifts in order to That's get right. to special characters. That's right. Um, and w- as opposed to lowercase that are just sitting there asking you to press the buttons. <laughs> It does reduce and, entropy, uh, randomness. And, well, but it ac- actually, uh, the all lowercase is, that is 26 characters, is 4.7 bits of entropy per character. And we're in the process of still deciding how many characters we want. But say that it was 16, four groups of four, all lowercase easily recognizable. You don't have to remove confusing characters like O and zero or lowercase L and numeric one, which often are indistinguishable in some typefaces and and so on. Uh, Somebody else mentioned capital K and lowercase K, not very different looking in some typefaces. And so it's all lowercase, easy to type, and, you know, not, I mean, it doesn't look as technical with all kinds of, you know, curly cues and and funky sharp edges pointing out of it like some super secret you know passcode but we want it to be user friendly and so we're going to end up with all lowercase and just a few more of them but what's really interesting is not that many more i think it was shoot i i i, I did the math a couple of days ago and now i've forgotten but it was like a few more we only had to if we had a a maximum entropy um all upper and lowercase digits and special characters alphabet or all lowercase, we only had to add like four more characters. And look, I mean, for mm. the same amount of entropy, and it was just vastly easier yeah. to, to, to enter that. Good. Let's make yep. it a little longer. It's easy. And of course, that's the haystack message is make it right, longer. Right, right. Length is what matters. Right. Jason uh, wonders about his Chase Bank password policy. Thanks for the great podcast. Really enjoyed the episode last week on e-commerce retailers' password policy. Love to see a similar study performed on online banking password policies. Uh, And I'd like to see another test vector added. Case insensitive accepting of passwords. I have an Amazon credit card that's managed through Chase Bank, and I've discovered it doesn't matter if it's upper or lower case. They, They just take it. Doesn't this mean they're either storing my password in the clear or they're modifying my password to remove the case before hashing? And so, yes, um, uh, it it probably means, I mean, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. All they have to be doing... Simple JavaScript would do it. Is lower, well, they could be lower casing it in the browser yeah. or they could be lower casing it when they receive it. Right. But they're probably removing case... And then let's hopefully they're hashing it in order to create the 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 you know something that is safe and and hopefully they're multiply hashing it and maybe you know running it you know a thousand times and and using uh, PBKDF two with with a large number of iterations to make it difficult for a bad guy to to um, 
to you know run through the hash in a forward direction essentially in order to determine what the password is and they're using per password salt so they're not able to build a single dictionary that runs on all the passwords in the site but all they have to do is remove what they want to ignore from the password on input and then perform the hashing and I did say something last week I wanted to remind myself or rem- I wanted to remember to mention and that was I I I uh, it came up, we were talking about a password being, too, maybe it was two weeks ago, a password being too similar. Someone's, oh, it's Yahoo. Uh, they were changing their Yahoo password, and Yahoo said, hey, you know, this password looks too much like the last one. Did that mean that they were storing it in the clear? And my immediate response was, well, yeah, of course. And then and then someone mentioned, he said, well, you know, Steve, that if typically when you are changing your password, you're rendering your old one first, and then, you know, to get permission to change it to your new one. So all they have to be doing, they could still be hashing it for storage. But they're just holding the one you've just entered. They hash that to verify your you. But now they keep that that you've just entered and verified that it's you. And then do a comparison to the one you're replacing it with. And if it's too similar, then they say, ah, you know, make it a little more different, please. Just don't play, change the... the uh, the number of monkeys from one to multiple right. uh, in your right. password. That makes sense. That was a good point. Yeah. Earl J. in Dallas-Fort Worth. Relevant to the target and others compromises, how could chip and pin prevent a successful attack if the point-of-sale device is owned? By the way, chip and pin is coming, we probably mentioned this before, to the U.S. by the end of next year. Yay. All the major credit cards are going to start adopting this, replacing the swipe method with a method that involves a microprocessor in your uh, credit card that apparent, I get, would guess stores the information that's on the swipe strip plus a pin. Yeah, well, it doesn't really even have to do that. The, um, what, what, the, what, what the EU saw when they adopted chip and pin was a reduction in credit card fraud 80%. Yikes. Now, dramatic. It cut out four out of five instances of fraud. Wow. And the... The, the 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 way to address Earl's question is, well, if the point-of-sale device is owned, what difference does it make? The key is that if is is passive versus active. If we have a passive card, as we do now in the U.S., everyone in my wallet is passive, then all it is is when you swipe it, it's saying, here's all my information. You know, it's like divulging everything it has to give. There it is. In a with a chip in the card, everything changes because now you query the card, and it it never needs to divulge its secret. What is if you have a simple mag strip card, it when you swipe it, its secret is now completely read by the device. With but but that's in a passive technology. With a chipped card, there is a there is a secret which is burned into the chip, which never leaves it, and it doesn't it doesn't relate it. It doesn't give it up. What happens is it's it's a so-called challenge response paradigm where a challenge is given to the chip in the card for it to respond to, and then 
then technology in the authentication end, which is probably not on the point of sale device. It's it, the point of sale device receives the challenge. It asks for a challenge, receives the challenge, gives it to the to the chip in the card. The the chip responds. The point of sale device sends the response back to a central server that that verifies that the card has responded appropriately to the challenge and then that server says to the point of sale device yes this is authenticated go so it's a it's a it's a substantially more complex but consequently vastly more secure solution and by the way that's exactly how squirrel works squirrel does the same thing the 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 little qr code on the website or the the, the or the one that's embedded in the link that you click on it is a challenge from the web server. Then your little squirrel client responds uh, by signing that, and only if it has the private key corresponding to the public key for that site is the signature valid. So it's the same kind of thing. It you can eavesdrop on this conversation, and you lose no security from from squirrel login, which is one of the several benefits of it. Paul B in New South Wales, Australia suggests. Uh, password retries. He says, has the view of the forest been obscured by all those darn trees? I feel that in discussions of limiting password retries, the quite critical risk of a trivially implemented denial of service attack has been myopically missed. (laughs) This came to my notice when I accidentally made three bad tries to log into my bank due to a persistent bug in Linux's implementation of typewriter mode, as I prefer the use of the caps lock key, I then had to contact the bank and was frustratingly required to change my lovely little password. All this was annoying enough as it was, but then I thought, okay, so all somebody has to do to take down the entire Internet banking function is to write a script to log on successively to random account numbers with four successive wrong passwords uh obviously this will be uh readily extensible to more like 10 if necessary the damage would be pretty much complete a deluge to their phone support as well as physical branches a pr disaster a dent in the share price and so a good time to buy of course one would not perform this from home probably not even via tour only a few bots would be required hardly an onerous task how do you defend blocking IPs? Well, with whole user block natted, that in itself would take out customers en masse. In short, it seems to me restricting password retries is for an enterprise on the Internet a terrible risk in itself. What about that? Somebody could intentionally block your yep. account yep. easily enough. Uh, and I, I think Paul is absolutely right. It wouldn't be blocking our account. It would be everybody's account. That is, if somebody decided they wanted to cause essentially a, a form of denial of service attack on a banking institution, they could tell, they could write scripts for a bunch of bots on a botnet to log in and run through every possible account number and and essentially guess the password until the system locks them out and then go to the next account. And that would shut down all online banking for that for that banking facility. Mm. I mean, he's absolutely right. I don't see any way around that being a major denial of service attack on a financial institution. Strikes me that uh, this only works if you use account numbers. True. 
It would exactly. You wouldn't be able to use a username and email address and then an account number. Right. Uh, my bank, for instance, uses a uh, you know a, it, well it could be a name, could be anything. We uses alphabet alphabetics, which would be harder to do. Right. Right. Uh, Craig Naples in uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, shares some thoughts about enforced password composition. Um, he says, listening to uh, the last episode, I was struck by the fact that you recommended online retailers should insist on a mix of letters, numbers, and cases and passwords. Uh, num- uh, however, if they're hashing these properly and using end-to-end encryption, how could they know what the entered characters are? I mean, I mean, really. Uh, surely it's better to have a system that password that's password agnostic, apart from minimum length, because otherwise... You'd introduce a weakness hackers can exploit to guess the domain size of possible passwords. Insist on at least one number, and most people will include just one. Meaning brute force attacks will try and probably succeed by putting just one number in all the positions, for example. I always thought a password system that has no idea what you have entered would be better than one that asks for specific characters, or is this something that's checked for locally as you enter them without the server's knowledge? Well, it doesn't really matter where the check is performed. It can be performed in the browser or, and in fact, where we see this being performed in the browser is with contemporary password strength meters, where, uh, you know, yes. as the you. Where as the user's typing, the you know JavaScript running in the browser is looking at what they've done and and evaluating the strength of their password as they're designing it, and. And in that case, you've got code running in the browser. My guess, though, is that when they submit it, it probably goes as sent to the remote end, at which point the technology there decides whether they agree that it's, it's you know, a, a qualifying password or not. But I certainly, I certainly take Craig's point. And, and this has been something that's been well understood when, when specific policies are enforced – what that does is give hackers a leg up because they know that I mean, and, and we are we, we've seen hackers. We, we absolutely know hackers are who are trying to do brute forcing will absolutely use their knowledge of the specific password policies of a site to design their attacks for that site. It's it absolutely would make no sense to waste any time at all. On passwords, for example, with no digits, if they know that the policy requires one or more, so it is absolutely true that again, the the the, the problem is this is just a fuzzy gray area where, in trying to strengthen passwords and and enforce behavior, that same enforced behavior can be leveraged by the bad guys to, as, as Craig suggests, to to further typify or characterize the the domain that the passwords are going to be um, operating within it would be it'd be interesting actually to have the policy f- vary as a function of user somehow oh, that's interesting yeah no i've never thought of that before but as i as i'm just saying this is like ah that'd be interesting to like yeah yeah to to like maybe take some aspect of their email address and come up with different requirements per user. Uh, but then, of course, now you've got a secret that you have to keep. And, of course, we know that secrets are uh, notoriously impossible to keep, which is why they're never a good thing to require. So, yeah, 
not such a good idea. <laughs> Jim Hyslip or Hislip in Toronto include. <laughs> this is good. He's got a little uh, C style include in here. Pound include bracket longtime listener etc. dot h and bracket <laughs> in uh, SN four thirty nine. You were lamenting that Microsoft wasn't going to continue applying security patches to XP. While I agree with your assessment that many of the vulnerabilities that are announced affect multiple versions of the Windows OS, and it is possible to apply the patches to all versions of Windows, I can understand why Microsoft decided not to continue doing it to XP. Microsoft's insistence on pushing people toward the latest and greatest is just rooted in a desire to sell more software. And there is a very real and practical reason to minimize the number of versions you need to support. I'm sorry, is not just rooted. I'm sorry, I misstated it not just rooted in a desire to sell more software. They just don't want to support all these different versions, and I think that's true. Each version of a software product that you have to support adds to the complexity of software development, configuration management, and testing. The increase in complexity is not linear. I've never taken the time to analyze the added complexity, but it's more like a logarithmic or possibly exponential increase in complexity. I'm starting to really like the tweet questions. You know, the 140-character ones? <laughs> The human brain is an amazing capacity of wrapping up extremely complex concepts and packing them with a simple label. Take, uh, can, do I have to read all this? Is there anything no. you want in here? No, Your um, version management system will track this change. Once it changes, it would be nice if Microsoft... Basically, you get the premise. By the way, he says I yeah. have a copy of Spinrite. The premise um, is there's good reason. It's complicated to support multiple operating systems, especially after, let's say, 15 years. Yeah, I, and I, I I I chose this not because it was long, but because I, I, Jim really does raise a valid point, and that is, we we you know we see Microsoft at any company. It's I mean, and Apple is notorious for this. Apple is has you know upset developers through time by discontinuing technologies, which you could argue you know were still relevant, but Apple just said no, we're not going to move that forward. And so, you know, I do appreciate the fact that, for example, with Windows 7, Microsoft finally said, okay, no more 16-bit support. 16-bit apps, I mean, if you absolutely have to have them, well, we'll give you XP in a virtual machine in Windows 7. But really, we're just, we don't want to have that code in the underlying OS any longer. So, you know, that, I really do understand that. And, and yes, uh, at some point, I think it does make sense for Microsoft to say, okay, it's been, as, Lee, as Leo, you said, 15 years. That's long enough. There's a time. There comes a time. Yes. I only wish That's... that what they were giving us was value as they move forward. As far as I'm concerned, there's nothing of any use in Windows 8 that, you know, that Windows 7 has. It's just a disaster. It's like, why force me to go somewhere I don't want to go? It's not like there's great value there unless I've, you know, missed something somewhere, Leo. There's improvements. Okay. But, but uh, there's, there's the other issue, which is actually, to me, the significant issue, which is addressed by our next question, which is there are machines with XP on the, on the Internet. What is Microsoft's responsibility to the greater Internet because those machines are going to become a threat to all of us. Uh, and that gets us to the question uh, from Simon Smith, Dublin, Ireland. He says, uh, I have two servers for educational purposes. Uh, one runs XP. It's a pretty old machine. doesn't have a lot of uh, hardware in it. I don't really want to load it with Windows 7. Would keeping it be a security hole in my network? 
It isn't directly on the internet. I have a VPN to get into it remotely. But it would, well, hmm, it sounds like it is on the internet, isn't it? But it would still have some outbound connectivity from time to time. Do I have to purge XP here? Um, you know, there is a, you know, you, you hear me urging people to install security patches every week. But those are systems that that users are are without complete control using um and you also heard me just saying you know worrying about crypto locker because you know it's 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 someone is going to click on something that they shouldn't and get them themselves infected and it's not just like oh look i've got a search bar that i don't want on my browser now it's oh my god all of the files within reach of that machine are irreversibly encrypted without paying ransom and and we better take this very very seriously I was running GRC's server until I replaced it only last year. Remember, over the holidays last year, I was running Windows 2000. That's that's what I was running. And there were people like, oh, oh my God. Well, you know, uh, it, there were some rough patches in the beginning where IIS, the, you know, had some problems with directory traversal mistakes and so forth. But... You know, no users were surfing on that. Um, it was just a web server and a and a file server that had filters that prevented anyone from accessing it except my IP block here at home. And it was, as far as I know, absolutely secure. One of the benefits I had of moving up to window to server two thousand eight R two was that I got all of the new SSL and TLS protocols because this box was so old that it didn't support any of those things. And so people were complaining that SSL Labs was, you know, giving me a D or whatever. I mean, still, arguably, absolutely secure, but, you know, not the latest and greatest. So I really do, I mean, I think Simon's question is very good. Um, I would say it's probably fine. To, to you know to understand that it's not going to have the latest patches um, but if it's being used in a careful and responsible way I think it's probably fine I'm looking at my own XP system here in front of me and I, I think of like all of the over the years all of the tunings and tweakings and and things I have done to, to I mean I've, the investment I have in its configuration is irreplaceable and when i move myself to 7 as i eventually will it's going to be like oh god you know i forgot i did this and i forgot i did that and it's just i mean it's going to take months to bring a windows 7 machine up to where you know i have this thing now so i can really understand someone making a a conscious decision to in 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 a in a in a fixed use fixed application environment just leave it be. Um, obviously, XP embedded in point of sale terminals, it's having problems. But uh, but that's happening while it's still fully supported. So it's not like you know that's the cause. If I mean it's and it's also not like systems just crumble mysteriously by themselves. It'll be an event which causes a problem. And if those events don't happen, then problems won't be caused. So yes, 
machines that users who you don't control are are in front of clicking on links and surfing around the internet i would say you really want to stay current with security machines running in the back that have a, a specific application and purpose if if they're stable and happy and you and they're not in danger from that kind of exploit i, I really think you're going to be fine it would also behoove us to remember this in future when you install a proprietary operating system you cannot count on it working forever and uh, i don't think that that's a reasonable expectation yeah so consider if you want to have something that runs decades you might want to use something uh, that you can guarantee support for such as an open source operating system yeah philip in uh, central virginia he says this i think is our last questions yeah the minimum password length is not only the number is not the only number number that needs to be tracked the maximum length needs to be included to have a complete picture of security, along with complexity allowed in the password. And then and this is the point this you were making was about last. Yeah. Yes. Uh, he also uses LastPass. He says, I've tried to go up uh, above 15 characters and have been rebuffed by limits from the same of the same websites listed here. My bank, for instance, Comcast wouldn't let me use 16. My bank wouldn't let me use more than 16. There are websites. Yep. This is Leo talking. Uh, back to the uh, email. There are websites not necessarily on the show's list that have a maximum of eight characters. Maximum. Some websites only allow letters and numbers, but no special characters. Until sites allow both longer passwords and special passwords by default, there is a greater chance of being hacked by the dark side. Long-time user Spinrite, long-time listener. Looking forward to the next version. Philip Taylor. Yeah, I, I, again, uh, he's absolutely right. This wraps up our coverage of passwords. I think we've pretty much beaten this thing to death. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm as a consequence of where my focus is now, I'm just thinking, oh, let's just abandon this entire model, the, this ridiculous, um, you know, lowest common denominator. This is what we've been doing since terminals were typing hash you know, pound signs and then backspacing over them so that you, so no one could see what you were typing to obscure your typed in password. And you know, it's funny, Leo, I do remember like holding paper printed up to the light and like looking through the, the obviously known obscuring character and looking at what was behind it because, you know, you could do it. It wasn't that, that it wasn't hard. that tricky. No, not that hard. You hacker, you. <laughs> I, I, uh, well, well that, yeah, that, I just, you know, we just need to abandon this. It, 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 I'll bet you that 10 years from now, the, the outlook is entirely different. You know, we've, we've got Squirrel happening. We've got the Fido Alliance happening. We've got the notion of multi-factor. I mean, we're, these things, this change happens slowly, but there is, there, we're just ramping up the pressure on this change. I, I think we're not that far from it. I haven't used a password to log into my uh, SSH servers on my uh, website in years. No password. I just I just uh, log in Leo at leoville.com and it goes boom. Okay, you're in. You know why? Because it's a much more secure system. I use uh, yep. I use uh, public key crypto. Yep. And uh, so it has my key. It recognizes the yep. key and lets me in. And believe me, that's more secure than any password. Right, I the same thing on my VPN uh, on yeah. my Open VPN servers. I've I, I built my own keys, and I've got you know keys in my clients that are right. roaming with, and it's like okay, just that, that solved that problem. SSH has that uh, authorized keys 
database and you could put authorized yep. keys in and we further restrict it to ip addresses so i have to be on a uh, approved ip address using an authorized key and boom i'm in and that actually is the one area where i'd say where we normally say there's a balance between convenience and security where it is much more convenient and much more secure it's one of the yeah. few exceptions to that rule uh it's so easy so easy uh, and I don't have to worry about the Chinese hackers anymore. Mr. Steve Gibson, you are the greatest. Go to grc.com. The show notes are now there. Yes. As long with 16 kilobit versions of the audio. Uh, full transcript will be there in a couple of days, thanks to Elaine Ferris. Yep. Steve provides all that at grc.com slash sn. But uh, there's lots of other things there. Don't, uh, you know, browse around. Steve's health guidelines. Yes. And they're good. Uh, Steve's password recommendations, lots of freebies, lots of free software, and of course, his bread and butter. Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility. You got to have it if you've got hard drives. Um, and uh, Steve will be back here next Tuesday. We do the show at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2100 UTC on twit.tv, so you can watch live. But of course, he has uh, audio. I have high quality audio and video at our site, twit.tv slash sn. And if you subscribe on iTunes or some other netcast client, you'll be able to get every episode every week the minute it comes out. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to you for listening, folks. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo.